the start of the Ashes Test at Lords, the prestige event at the home of cricket, and a prime target for protesters. The end of the first over bowled by England, their chosen moment for disruption. Evading security to reach the outfield and spreading orange powder paint, the hallmark of just stop oil. England's Johnny Bairstow alerts the danger, carrying the defiant demonstrator back to the boundary rope, taking matters into his own hands. That is the sound of Just Stop Oil protesters. The UK climate activist group has been blocking major roads and disrupting sporting events to pressure the government to stop all new licensing for the extraction of North Sea oil. Over 90 million tonnes of oil was extracted from the North Sea in 2019. But on the global scale, that is just a drop in the ocean. Every year, the world consumes 4.25 billion tonnes of oil. The biggest cause of the world's oil consumption is road transport, and over half of those 4.25 billion tonnes is used for some form of transport, whether that's people or goods. The transport sector has been making strides towards ending its reliance on oil. 56 countries already have plans that will ban the sale of non-electric vehicles somewhere between 2025 and 2050. But the fossil fuels we pull out of the ground aren't just used for powering engines. Oil used across almost the entire economy, including the manufacturing of all sorts of products. From health and beauty products to medical devices and pharmaceuticals, textiles and anything that's made from plastic. So in order to stop extracting oil, we need to not only replace it as a fuel used for cars, but also find replacements for everything we use petroleum to make. And one company has been working for the last decade to create plant-based materials that are not only chemically identical to their fossil fuel-based counterparts, but also carbon negative. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we're looking at a process developed by Origin Materials, which creates carbon negative materials and how they are trying to scale up to replace a $1 trillion fossil fuel-based materials market. John Bissell started Origin Materials with his co-founder, Ryan Smith, when they were undergraduate chemical engineers in 2008. It felt that we weren't really innovating as a species on materials in as fundamental a way as we should be. We didn't really understand why. But that was a general sense, you know, to the extent that an undergraduate chemical engineer has a real sense of any of this stuff. We were pretty gregarious, though, so we were we were sort of trying to understand things. And uh, again, as much as you can by wandering around an academic department. And um, so that was one. I think another was, you know, climate change was um, becoming something that we all paid a lot of attention to. And so I, I think it it seemed obvious to us or natural maybe to us that those two problems should maybe be linked at least in some way and so that was sort of how we got started they saw the emissions caused by materials as an under-researched area compared to other polluting sectors 
generally speaking, materials account for about the same amount of emissions as um, as automotive transport globally. So it's a pretty, it's a big chunk, but it's a chunk that has gotten a lot less focus. And that's the emissions component. There's also, you know, the idea that if we're sequestering all of this carbon in some fashion, well, we should probably use it for something. I, I mean, it's one thing to inject it in the ground um, and store, sort of lock it away. But but I think if you could use that carbon or you could intercept the carbon at a point where you can you could use it in materials, I think that's sort of a, it feels elegant, <laughs> which is often a good starting place for, place for engineering solutions. So they set about their goal of turning plant matter into chemically identical but carbon-negative plastic. And now, after more than 15 years, they're about to open their first commercial plant and start delivering orders. The process begins with wood chips, a waste product generated by lumber yards when producing lumber. But this is just because it is easy to get and transport in large quantities. John says pretty much any plant would work. You can use just about any plant, you know, woody, agricultural residual type feedstock. Uh, so if it has cellulose and hemicellulose, then that can that works for us. Then they had to decide on the intermediates they were trying to produce. The intermediates being the chemical compounds that can then be turned into the plastics. Turning the intermediates into plastic is the easy part. There are technologies that look more like what we do on a pretty routine basis in the chemical industry right now. But turning wood chips into the chemical intermediates, that's the tricky part. And so for us, you sort of selected the intermediate product, chloromethylforal and hydrothermal carbon, which are sort of the two primary intermediates in kind of our process. You sort of selected that when you selected the technology in the beginning. And after years of improving and refining their process, they are now able to efficiently turn the wood chips into chloromethylferferol, or CMF, and hydrothermal carbon, or HTC. It's maybe roughly analogous to craft pulping, which basically means we're taking the size-reduced wood, we're throwing it in a liquid phase reactor, that liquid phase reactor is a biphasic reactor, so there's an organic phase and a, an aqueous phase. The craft process or sulfate process is a typical way wood is processed into pulp for use in paper. All that's added to origin materials reactor is the wood chips, the aqueous phase and hydrochloric acid as a catalyst to break down the wood chips. It's a reactive extraction, so it's producing the intermediate CMF and it's extracting it at the same time. That's important for producing high enough yields to make the process efficient. And it's reacting the cellulose and the hemicellulose off of the wood chips because that's the that's the reagent for a production of CMF, chloromethylforal. But that's just one of the intermediates they produce. The chemical process is also producing the second intermediate compound, HTC, or hydrothermal carbon. It's also producing what we call hydrothermal carbon, from the lignin, which is mostly unreacted uh, in the process. Lignin is an organic polymer found in plants that helps with the formation and strengthening of cell walls. But 
you know, without the structural support of cellulose and hemicellulose, the lignin breaks down into smaller fragments. Those fragments form particles that are sort of a particulate material where you have lignin at the center and then you have reacted furan species uh, on top. Um, and that's what we call our hydrothermal carbon. That material stays in the aqueous phase for the most part. Now they have produced HTC and CMF, Origin Materials still has to turn them into chemicals that are already being used in industry. We would like to get to the point that we can just send CMF or perhaps sort of one derivative downstream of CMF. We sort of call CMF our, our ethylene, right? It's, a, it's the platform intermediate that we think an enormous number of materials can be built from uh, that you really can't make today. So that's what we'd like to do. The reality, of course, is that nobody buys CMF right now. It's not an article of commerce. It's never been available at any reasonable scale. And so consequently, we must build out our own supply chain downstream of CMF. So the first compound they chose was paroxylene, which is a commonly used chemical feedstock for creating PTA and PET, which are polymers used in many different applications like plastic packaging, clothing, and even car parts. Currently, producing one kilogram of PET results in around six kilograms of CO2. This process takes a few steps. First, turning the CMF into 5-methylferferol via hydrodechlorination, then converting that to dimethylfuran, or DMF, which is then turned into paroxylene, or PX, which can then be used in already existing and well-scaled systems to produce chemically identical PET. It is identical. I mean, technically, you know, you can identify differences in the carbon isotope ratios because the carbon in the PET that we make from our products was taken up by plants and the photosynthetic pathway. The photosynthetic pathway is taking the carbon out of the atmosphere, which has been hit by cosmic rays of various sorts, which, um, which causes it to have a, a different isotope ratio than carbon that's been sitting in the ground. Um, for millennia, but uh, and then you can actually differentiate even further what type of uh, what class of plant photosynthesized that particular carbon, which is sort of interesting too, based on the a different isotope ratio because of the preferences. But yeah, I mean, this is all to say it's it's so identical that you have to essentially put it through a particle accelerator to identify that it might have come from a different source. John says they are capable, through more experimentation, of making materials that aren't exact copies of existing materials, but improved versions with better features like strength or elasticity. But John and his Origin Materials team decided that creating chemically identical materials would be easier to take to market. We didn't want to have to take um, significant amounts of product risk at the same time we were taking process risk. And so it simplified sort of the go-to-market strategy and the technology scale-up. And so we thought, you know, paraxylene, an existing product with a very large market, was the way that we could drag our platform to scale. After years of developing and iterating on their process to make it as efficient as possible, Origin Materials can now produce their intermediate CMF and its downstream products like PET cost-effectively and carbon-negatively. But now Origin Materials are scaling up and they have completed construction on their first demonstration plant, Origin One. Origin One still won't be enough to meet their existing demand. 
but it will allow them to fulfill demand for qualification and sampling. So the rule of thumb in the chemical industry, uh, particularly scaling in the chemical industry, is chemistry works and physics fails when you scale up. The physical processes are usually where you get caught. And that can be anything from uh, suspended solids in a liquid and flow regimes to um, the one that really gets uh, is is notorious for getting people during scale up is solids handling and processing. As soon as there's a solid present, everything gets a little bit more interesting, maybe a lot more interesting. You know, you you use those intermediate scaling steps to try to um, flush out any uh, physical surprises that might happen as a result of the process. The Origin One demonstration plant went online just last week in June 2023, and plans are being developed for Origin Two and Three, which will be on an even larger scale and the first that will start delivering orders to clients. But John is already looking at ways he wants to change Origin Materials' approach. One thing he was surprised to see was how open many companies were to what is called chemical substitution. I think the broader consumer-facing chemical-using industries, which is to say essentially all of the industries which make physical goods, because that's essentially what the chemical industry supplies, is all physical goods for humankind. Those, those companies are more open for a variety of reasons to material what they call material substitution, which is swapping out one material for another in an application. And the reasons for that are sort of different for each industry and each company, but I'd say it is happening at an order of magnitude higher rate than it was a decade ago. So they have already begun to try and develop not just cheaper carbon negative materials, but also better, more useful materials. But the biggest difficulty with this approach is... How do we identify the materials that are interesting and how do we identify the applications that are interesting? And I think there isn't a good, reliable answer for that. It requires judgment and intuition and lots of market um, interaction and understanding of the application space. And we're constantly surprised anyway. You know, we find things pretty regularly where we turn over a rock and say, geez, we never thought about that one. That's really interesting. How did we miss that? But the reality is there are tens of thousands of different applications for different products in the world. And um, chemicals interact with each of those applications differently, sometimes in very surprising ways. And nobody could be an expert on every single one of those applications. No company uh, can have an expert on every single one of those applications. And so that makes it quite a quite an interesting challenge. It also keeps it very, very interesting for all of us. We, we really enjoy it because we get to learn about new applications all the time. One example of an innovation that Origin Materials have been exploring with their clients is removing multi-layer barrier films. They stop the transport of gases across the barrier, the, the package. And so, you know, if you have milk or something like that, you don't want oxygen to get into your milk uh, because it will shorten the shelf life. The, the milk will go rancid as a result of the reaction with oxygen. That's one example, but there are lots of others. Um, usually you're concerned with things like CO2, oxygen, water, those are the big barriers. Uh, fats can be an issue too, um, although that wouldn't be a gas typically. And so um, in order to get the barrier properties that you want and drive the shelf life that you want, you usually want to use a very you know high 
gas barrier material. Unfortunately, the high gas barrier materials generally are not good structural materials. Um, so if you want to have a package that has some structure to it and, you know, doesn't tear and is durable enough to ship and, and be handled and maybe looks good, then you can't just use the barrier material. You have to sandwich it in between other materials. This means when you account for the structural layers, barrier layers and adhesive layers, things like milk packaging can have up to seven layers. The problem with that is it makes that item completely unrecyclable. So the end of life is now doomed for that, that particular item. But because you need the performance, you just suck it up. One of the th products that we can make, PEF, from our uh, materials that you can't really make from petroleum or fossil-based materials, uh, at least not very effectively, has quite good barrier properties as a mono material. So without layering it in between all of these other things, um, it acts basically like PET, but with much better barrier for CO2 oxygen and water. And so that's an opportunity to replace existing multi-layer barrier films with a polyester material that is, you know, renewable content, lower carbon footprint, and is actually recyclable, unlike the existing multi-layer barrier films that are out there. So that would be one application that I think is really interesting. Whether or not origin materials are innovating and creating new materials, or just replicating carbon negative versions of existing ones, they believe their materials have a $1 trillion addressable market, with applications including textiles, plastics, packaging, car parts, tires, carpeting, toys, and much more. And while their materials do hold advantages over petroleum-based materials, like being decoupled from the volatile price of oil and being able to develop improved versions of polymers, their most important advantage is undoubtedly their claim of being carbon negative. So how have they calculated this? So we take into account the energy and the carbon footprint of the starting feedstocks when we say, you know, we're a, we're a lower carbon alternative um, or carbon negative alternative. You know, the energy input is not zero. You do have to put energy into the system. There are, of course, just like any process, choices you can make about uh, sort of how much capital do you deploy um, in order to, you know, recover as much or be as ener uh, energy as possible or be as energy efficient as possible. Because it's a little bit younger um, of, a, of a chemical process, it's not as highly optimized as some of the ones that we're, um, let's say, more used to at commodity scale that have been around for, you know, 50 or 100 years. So it's a, perhaps slightly higher uh, energy intensity uh, as a result of just being a younger process, but um, certainly not high enough to wash out the dramatic gains that you get from the, the feedstock utilization. Because their feedstock is from trees, their numbers are based on using sustainably grown North American softwood, they act as a carbon sink. And because the material doesn't biodegrade, it doesn't release the carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere and is locked away and can be recycled and reused. So we tend to look at it as, um, uh, as it leaves our, our factory. The things that we include in that are feedstock and energy, utilities, other materials that go into the process. So that all gets counted. They don't include in the carbon negative calculations the end application of the material. That's because we don't always control the application. It's difficult 
lot of the materials in the chemical industry are used for hundreds of different applications. So the same material is going all over the place in, in a completely different set. It would sort of imply that we, if we were focused on the carbon footprint of how our material is being used across all applications, that we might not be willing to sell that material into a given application because it had a higher carbon footprint. And I think that is probably a cutting off your nose to spite your face kind of situation. That material is going to get, you know, in the case of polyester or PETs, for example, if we're producing PET and somebody is going to buy it, they were using PET anyway. The idea that we would say, no, no, your application isn't a good one and it's too, too emitting. Uh, and therefore, we're not going to sell you our lower carbon PET. You know, they're going to get the PET somewhere. Better that they get it, a lower carbon version from us. Another difficulty in making these calculations is they don't have a full-scale commercial plant operating yet, so they're trying to estimate the emissions of what they can expect to be a typical origin materials plant. Now, of course, there probably is no such thing as a typical plant. This is sort of a fiction, a shared fiction, amongst a lot of these different technologies. A plant in one place in the United States might have a particular emissions profile because of the energy it's consuming and the provenance of that energy. In a different spot, it will have a different one uh, as just as a consequence of you know what's connected to the grid there. And so on a plant by plant basis, we'll have to go back and see, well, well, how did we actually perform on that individual plant? But what we try to do right now is say, well, what, what do we think is a reasonable estimation of a typical plant using our technology? The final carbon outcome is determined based on what's leaving the plant's gates, and that will depend on the final product that's being produced. So, you know, what's the carbon footprint when the CMF is going to para-xylene versus when it's going to furan dicarboxylic acid, which is going to go into PEF? That will have an effect on the carbon footprint for an individual plant as well. Origin Materials will continue to track and measure the life cycle assessment of their materials once they have commercial plants up and running. But for now, the assessment conducted by Deloitte found that CMF production is carbon negative. For every kilogram of CMF produced, 1.2 kilograms of CO2 are removed from the atmosphere. And for HTC, their other main intermediates, the figure is 1.7 kilograms of CO2 removed for every kilogram of HTC produced. One factor in their process that Origin Materials will continue to test is their feedstock. Regardless of the type of plant matter, the end product will be effectively identical. Right now, the decision to use wood chips is driven mostly by their availability and ease of transport. What does change from feedstock to feedstock quite substantially is the cost of the feedstock as delivered. So some feedstocks are more difficult to, to collect you can't get as much in a in a you know given radius, and typically the logistics cost for delivery of a feedstock drive a significant amount of the, the cost, the overall cost of the feedstock to us or to any plant that's taking it in. But the best option available will vary from location to location. You know, if you look at North America versus East Asia versus um, Southeast Asia. There are different feedstocks that are interesting in each of those areas. You know, it's it's not always the same all the way across. So we think that'll be an interesting opportunity as we go. This means Origin Materials can continue to test which feedstocks will be the most cost-effective in each region 
while also producing the greatest carbon reduction. We may be a few years from proving carbon negativity at a commercial scale, and it may be a while before your milk carton or car seat is carbon negative. But it's not just their belief. Many in the materials industry are backing Origin Materials and see the clear benefits of their carbon negative materials. That's why we have, uh, we were booking a billion dollars a quarter of new orders. When it comes to, you know, PET or in fact, actually products like Carbon Black, I think too, you don't have to change very much. You get the lower carbon alternative. Our cost is, is competitive with fossil-based materials, but, you know, due to the extraordinary demand we have, our price is not always consi uh, uh, consistent with fossil-based materials right now. So that, that has an effect too. That's a pretty straightforward buying decision for most parties. And it's a process of research, development, and scaling up that needs to begin now. John thinks that even with Origin Materials moving as quickly as they possibly could, they'll never be able to meet the demand for what they've created. Developing the operational complexity and capability to execute on those projects is, is that's a real thing. I think if we do that successfully, I think there's not a lot that's in our way. But I think it's also worth remembering that even if we were pedal to the metal, building plants as fast as we possibly could, the scale of demand and the scale of the industry, even just for polyester, let alone all the other stuff that we can make, is so large that really we can't even keep up with the incremental demand growth, even building as quickly as we can. If we are going to stop extracting oil, it's not just cars or planes that need to find alternatives. Every company that exists within that $1 trillion market that uses petroleum-based materials needs to find a fossil-free alternative. And so Origin Materials wants to work with companies to help them use their technology and speed up the development of carbon-negative material. So I think that's going to lead us to, and we're already starting to see this, work with other companies to use our technology to, for them to build plants, right, off our balance sheet so that we're not constrained by Origin's capital deployment capability. You know, there's, there's no one company that has the at least now, that has the, the wherewithal to deploy all of the capital to make the changes that would need to be made. Because this is not a, this is not a build one plant kind of story. This is, you know, if we get this right, we'll be building dozens or perhaps even hundreds of plants over the course of decades. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Johnny Dowling, and my co-host was Rian Owen. Editing by Will North, series supervision by John Young, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, and our own origin material comes from Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.